So, Dad, you were talking about how you went to residential school earlier, and how everyone besides your great-grandparents went to residential school, and how Orange Shirt Day was only a few days ago. Could you maybe expand on that? Yeah, sure. When I was 12, 13 years old, I went to residential school. I went to Labrette Indian Residential School. That's what it was called at that time, Capel Indian Residential School. QIRS, and it was that way until I left the school. And after that, that's when the school changed it to White Calf Collegiate, their name. Uh, the thing is, when I went to Labrette School, it was run by First Nations. It was actually run by the Star Blanket Cree Nation. But the problem was is that everybody who worked at the school were all, at one time, students of a residential school. So really, it was people who ran the school, went to the school. And the thing is, when I went to the school, it was the same school that my mom and dad went to and the same school that my grandparents went to. My, my, my mom's dad, my mom's mom, my dad's parents, they all went to the same school. And the thing is, it's, it's something to be going to the same place. Like, for instance, you live at the school. You go to bed there, you wake up, you're at the school, you have your breakfast, lunch, dinner, supper, you play sports... And you go to school at the same place. So there's no going home. I mean, the biggest thing that uh, hit me first when I went there is loneliness. That was the, the big thing, being lonely. Sure, my parents only lived about an hour's drive away, but I went to school there. And I was going to go to school there because, you know, I had enough of all the other schools of going to regular schools like in, say, Melville. I ran into trouble there, so... My only option after that was to go to the residential school, so that's where I went. And, you know, there's all kinds of abuses that happened at that school. There was psychological, physical, there was spiritual, and there was also sexual abuse. It was all there. And the thing is, it's something that you have to watch out for. Take care of yourself. Watch yourself first. Meaning, it was almost like uh, going to jail, in a way. Because every night, we had what was called lockup. So when we go into our dorms, the CCWs, the child care workers, would then lock the dorm at, say, 11 p.m. and not unlock the door until 6 a.m. So for those so many hours, we were actually locked in a room. And during that time, well, especially the first month or so, we had what was called the King of the Hill or Fight Club. You know, it was a way of uh, establishing who, who is boss, who's the top dog. So all the boys would, you know, have a big fight tournament. And we'd all, you know, slap each other around, punch each other around to see who the boss was. A lot of times I was the boss. A few times I wasn't the boss. But the thing is, it's just something that you have to be aware of. Like, for instance, to go to school, you had to be physically tough, psychologically tough. You had to be tough all around. And if you weren't, then you became the weak person. And if you're the weak person, everybody jumped on you. You know, only the strong survive, the old saying goes. That's, you know, that was what it was at Labrette School. Or any residential school. The thing is, there was all kinds of other things happening. Like, for instance, food. Yeah, we got fed. Our breakfasts, you know, if we're lucky, we got fried eggs. If we're lucky, we got toast, bacon, or sausage. It did happen. We'd have at least one of those meals a week. Otherwise, we had cold cereal with milk, sugar, Sometimes bread if we were lucky. Peanut butter if it, it was available. But more usually, most times we had what was called porridge. Big old thick sticky porridge. 
They gave us brown sugar, and sometimes we had butter. But we always had milk, a glass of milk. I think is every morning, you know, usually had that same old oatmeal. And sometimes they had toast, sometimes it was bread, but, you know, we got fed. Lunches, well, they ranged. Sometimes it was a sandwich, sometimes, you know, you know, Friday was always fish and chips. We always had fish and chip meal on Friday. Uh, weekends, it was more laid back kind of cooking, hot dogs, hamburgers, that kind of stuff. Throughout the week for our lunch, you know, it ranged from, you know, having, you know, sausages, pierogies, you know, that kind of stuff, and smokies. Supper time, it ranged, but usually at least once or twice, maybe three times a week, we'd have boiled sausages and boiled potatoes. That was a staple meal. And the thing is, it wasn't really the cook's fault. It was just that's what was on sale and that's what they were serving. So, if you didn't play sports, you were stuck with what the cafeteria gave you. Now, if you, you know, joined the sports teams, say volleyball, basketball, badminton, long distance running, track and field, cross country, you got fed a little bit more. You know, you got preferential treatment, meaning they looked after you a little bit better. So as athletes, they fed us more, so we got better meals. More meat and potatoes, you know, more proteins. Sometimes they take us out for supper, you know, go get pizza, go get something else somewhere else. But, you know, that was the trade-off. If you didn't play sports, you didn't get that. If you played sports, you got a little bit of perks here and there. So, you know, I, I joined basketball, I joined volleyball, I joined every sports team there was. I was in there. Just because, you know, we had preferential treatment. But in a sense... Of joining those teams, we were also putting ourselves up against more possibility of, you know, things that could happen. Like, for instance, there is the, as they call it, hazing. You join a new team, they haze you. They have to do something physical to you to put you into the next team. You know, there's all kinds of weird crap that happened there, too. I mean, the coaches actually wanted it to happen. They liked it. They watched, physically watched whatever happened. That's what the coaches did. There's three or four coaches that are real, as I say, kindly using the words asshat, dickhead, bad person. So it was a training school for psychopaths? In this no, no, it wasn't a training, training school for that. It was... They got away with a lot of stuff because the boys and girls that went to school there wouldn't say anything. And if we did, it was hush-hushed. It was, shh, be quiet. Because the way that you were were talking, it sounds like it was like some sort of hyper-Darwinian exchange of survival of the fittest. In a sense, yes. In a sense, yes, it was. And the thing is, it was made that way. Right from the beginning of what residential school is. Back in the 1880s. When it first started. When they first started that, what it was was to kill the Indian within the child, to change that First Nations child and make them Canadian, make them more European, make them white, make them think like a white person, Uh, a Caucasian, like the government official. Yeah, like a Caucasian. Well, in a sense, yes. But the reason why they did that is because they didn't want us to be who we were they wanted to change us they wanted to make sure we would disappear so we'd be just absorbed into the country so they can take everything else away from us so that's what residential school was my great well my grandfather my dad's dad and mom went to school there 
at the time was the industrial school. So that's when they went there. They didn't really get tuned. They were learnt, They taught them how to read and write, basic math, basic stuff at the time, up to grade eight. And they were taught, you know, a vocation. My grandfather was taught to be a farmer. My grandmother, Fleur Dumont, she was taught how to be a cook. So they, they basically trained her to be a cook. So when she graduated from school, they were actually forced to get married. For instance, they took a farmer, my grandfather, Willie Uzichby, took him to the chapel of the school. They grabbed the cook from the girl's side, took her to the chapel of the school. They knew each other, but they didn't know each other. Like, they weren't friends. No. Because the boys and girls were really weren't allowed to talk to each other throughout school. So actually, every classroom was split. Boys on one side, girls on the other. And they weren't allowed to talk to each other. But they all had to take the same kind of courses, like, say, math or English or French or whatever it was. Boys would be on one side of the room, girls would be on the other. So besides the occasional, hi, hello. That's basically what it was, walking down the hallway. And when they were walking down the hallway, if you saw your younger sibling or younger brother, if you waved at them or made acclamation, you know, or acknowledged your sibling, a nun or a priest would then come up and slap you, hit you, do something else to you, or scold you because you weren't allowed to talk to your younger brother or sister. They wanted to break even family bonds. That's what residential school was. They were breaking those kids in every possible way. And the thing is, if a kid got too worse or pushed it too far, they were, you know, eliminated. Yeah. You know, there's all kinds of bad stories about that. But, you know, when I went to school there, you know, it's it wasn't that bad for that. Bad, part, but, but it was still bad. Yeah. Meaning, <clears throat> we had, um, you know, like I said, talking about the sports teams. So I joined the volleyball team. In our first volleyball tournament, we went out to go play, and on the way back, they started what they call their hazing. I'm not getting into too much details, but it was, you know, sexually oriented. Oh. And it wasn't fun. And it wasn't, there was no penetration or anything, but the act was still done. Mm -hmm. And the coaches are in the front laughing and carrying on. And when I took this up to, because I was the one student that said, that's wrong, it shouldn't happen. I went up to the administrator at the time. The administrator then came down on the coach, which then turned around and came down on me. Wow. So as they say, you know, poop flows downhill. Well, I found out pretty quick that you don't stir the boat without paying a consequence. So I was already a tough enough guy already. It just made me more tougher. Oh. So after that, that was the first month or two of school. Then uh, the kid who was in charge of the school at the time, the one who fought the, you know, won the contest, yeah. decided to uh, rough me up. Well, that was the end of him. He, he was shipped home after that one night. So oh. two of us got into it and he went home and I was still living at the school. And I stayed there for five and a half years. Now, there was also what we call foreign outside of abuse. Uh, that's what I call it. That was, for instance, this one afternoon, we had this uh, Hapkido teacher come into the gymnasium out of the blue and was going to teach all us boys how to fight and use Hapkido. Yeah, well, I was watching that. I was watching on the outside and watching some of the older boys and some of my friends really getting roughed up. And this guy was just tossing people left, right, center, and he wasn't training anybody. He was just beating the hell out of everybody. Like that, That's the way I saw it. So he was a friend of one of the CCWs who allowed him in, and he was doing this for it. it only happened one afternoon. 
Why? What happened? Oh, what happened? Oh, what happened? What oh, happened no. was uh, I, I got a little ignorant. And basically, uh, his hepkido wasn't as strong as my res foo. That's the way I, I put it. Oh, no. And basically, I, I had fun. So I had that poor little guy. And he wasn't much bigger than me. He was an adult. But, you know, a few kicks here and a few hits there. And you pull the ear this way. And you stick your finger in his mouth. And you pull down pretty quick. And you're kicking him at the same time. Well, let's put it this way. He packed up his bags and he left the school. And nothing was ever said of it. Or did he turn him into a pretzel? Oh, I I just roughed him up pretty good and sent him on his way. And nothing was ever said of it. In oh. fact, it wasn't even reported. I mean, what is what what is he gonna say? Well, I was I wasn't asked to come to the school, but I came to the school to do it. And I was roughing up kids, hurting kids. You know, he would have been in more trouble than I was. Yeah. And I wasn't even an adult at the time. I was still a minor, but you know, whatever. That was. One of the, what I call, foreign outside abuses. Then there's, uh, well, one that happened. And it was a very hush-hush, bang-bang. They took all the bad boys of the school, and I was on the list of being one of the tough guys. So I was involved and volunteered to it. This was never reported. I don't even think if uh, administration even knew about it, or in CCWs. Maybe some of them did, but not all of them. Now, they had this uh, team came in, and they were uh, using tasers first round of testing of tasers those are zap zap you know the ones with the prongs the ones with the prongs they shoot those ones or the handhelds oh and they were testing them on us and at the time there were no regulations or levels so they were just testing on everybody bang 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 there were six of us and each in turn one would fall down and do the wild chicken on the on the ground and it came to me they zapped me and i no no effect they did it on six different levels and had no effect on them except for the fact that it put me into a very enraged state. Oh. I became very violent. But, I mean, that's that incident. And nothing has ever been said about it. I've, I've never asked or asked for anything for it, but it, it did happen. Like, there was no zero checks and balances from the school side of it for what happened. I mean, you know, not everything was bad. You know, there's a fun side to it, too. I mean... For instance, we got to use uh, rollerblades at least six years before they came out in the market. Mind oh. you, some of the proto prototypes we were using were kind of rank. Oh. Like, for instance, no brakes. No they're brakes. Straight flywheel fast. So here we are skating around in our gymnasium, full out, and there's no brakes, no nothing. How do you stop? You don't. So you hit the wall. Bang! <laughs> no, oh, not even like the side turn. Not well. They weren't really that great to go side to stop because you do that, you'd flip and roll over. Oh no. Like, there was no, like, like some of them, you press on the back and there's there's a little pad or something, at least to break you somehow. No, <laughs> not with those first ones, nope. <laughs> there was some that had double blade, like double double wheels. Oh, so kind of like retro ones from, yeah, like, the 50s? Yeah, from the 50s. 70s. Different kinds. Like, this company came in and they had, like, three different styles of um, rollerblades. And we kept them for about a month or so, a little over a month. We were getting pretty good skating with them, but, I mean, you know, that, that was the fun side of it. You know, that, you know, there wasn't all just bad. I mean, like, for instance, like I said, like, when you're joining uh, any of the sports teams, you got preferential treatment. And, you know, with that, you know, there was the abuse as part of it. Like, for instance, volleyball. I mean, me and the volleyball coach didn't see eye to eye once, whatsoever. Yeah, didn't he say he was, like, six feet tall or something? Yeah, well, yeah, it didn't matter how tall he was. It just, like, meaning our personalities never 
seen eye to eye. And he was also the coach of the you know, long distance running team and he couldn't get rid of me either because I was one of the top runners. Uh-huh. I could run, you know, ten kilometers in so many minutes, twenty kilometers, I could run a whole marathon, full out, run. That's how I was. I was a long distance runner. I mean, me and that guy didn't you know, like I said, we didn't didn't see eye to eye. But it you know, it, it was it was Okay. No, like like I said, it's 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 something that you have to go through. Like for instance, uh, it's like a coming of age. You know, everybody's got to do something to a certain age to learn something. Well, I learned a lot of things going in Labrette school, and it wasn't all basically education based. I learned how to deal with you know all kinds of walk of life, meaning. It didn't matter if you came from a rich family, a poor family, you came from a local reserve or from way out in the middle of nowhere. Like we had kids from all over. We had we had kids from what we call from the sticks, meaning from way up northern Saskatchewan, isolated reserves. Like, like north of Prince Albert. North of Prince Albert, always almost a black lake. I mean black way, lake. way up there. Like kids that had to be flown in from their reserve and then driven from Saskatoon down to us to go to school with us. I mean that that's you know kind of funny and, and there's some funny stories with that too like for instance we had this one boy I don't know where he's from way up in the middle of nowhere he was a you know he was a grade 10 student grade 11, grade 11 student I was in grade 10 he was in grade 11 and we they got him a brand new mattress posturepedic the whole you know brand new mattresses and the, the mattresses we had were used for years and years and years so this guy starts school he comes in the dorm that night and carried a little small gym bag with some clothes that was his clothes and he had a little backpack for his books and he had a big big garbage bag and I was laughing at him and said hey buddy I said what's in the bag well that's that's my bed he said your bed no no that's your bed right there it's a brand new mattress oh no 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 he said I don't use those what do you mean you don't use those so he took the mattress off and he just pushed it off to the side and I grabbed the mattress and pulled it off to closer to me because I was like okay I'm watching this getting out of the way this guy I'm unpacked this big garbage bag. It was a super garbage bag. You unloaded it. There's one, two, three, four, five, six. There's seven old coats. You know, down coats. He laid them down on the on the bed frame and that was his bed. Wow. He slept on old coats. He didn't have a mattress. So I took that mattress and I switched it with my bed and I had a brand new mattress. But I mean, you know, like I said, there's all kinds of walk of life that I dealt with. And the thing is, it's not just, you know, personalities. Like, there was all kinds of people that went to school. There was, there was a church mouse type student. Won't say nothing, very quiet, prim and proper, no problem. Always in the chapel. Yeah, or, no, not so much in the chapel, but in a little bookworm, you know. Mousy, meaning very quiet, yeah. kept to themselves. There was boys, and there was girls, same way. And then you had the super nerds, the awkward ones, that... If you looked at them, their eyeballs would go up or down. That they, they couldn't look at you. They're so awkward and backwoods and just not comfortable with anybody that they would even eat alone in the cafeteria. Wow. We had big round tables where 12 people, 12 kids could sit around the table. Then there was two tables in which that's where all the oddball students would go and eat. And there's there's a lot of them. They'd all sit in their own tables with each other and they'd, they'd kind of look at each other and kind of shoulder check each other. And then, then you had the kids that, you know, it was like prison. They'd put their armor on their plate when it comes to mealtime. 
and they grab their fork and they protect their food and they you know protect it as they're eating wouldn't let anybody come near them oh they growl at you you know that there was that type and then you had you know the, the average student you know the ones that are nice to get along with you know people consider to me to be in that that average student part you know i, I was friendly with everybody you know i didn't i didn't start anything you know that's what they told me you know that's what a lot of people said i i consider myself to be a lone wolf myself i didn't really give a crap about anybody else but i didn't let anybody get beaten up or anything you know that was the thing i was more like i policed everybody kind of kind of got with the morals you know kind of thing so you were the pendulum that kept the balance well i tried to be it didn't always work that way but i tried and the thing is it's then you had the jocks the super jocks who are just, you know, obnoxious. Friday the 13th jocks? Well, just, just the jocks, you know. Oh. Not the smartest guys in the world, but all they can do is play sports. That's what they were there for. Play sports. Play sports. You know, anything sports. That's what they were. Sports related. And, you know, they're, you know, some of them were decent and some were real a-holes. I mean, and they looked down upon everybody. Uh, they considered themselves to be the gods of the school, you know. Mind you, you know, some of them I kind of made fun of. I said, well, you know, there was about five or six of them. I said, well, there's a reason why you wear sandals in class, especially when it comes to math, because you need to count your fingers and toes to, you know, do basic math. And they just look at me, and they they couldn't say anything, you know. And, and I'd just sit there and smirk and laugh at them and say, yeah, whatever, and walk away, you know. I got cheeky with them. That's right. But, you know, being a cheeky person, you got to be able to back it up. And I, I could you know, I'd, my mom and dad, they put me in boxing, they put me in all kinds of schooling, martial arts, they put me through all kinds of classes, and, you know, I was a part of the Golden Gloves Foundation, I boxed as a teenager, before I went to residential school. Wow. So, you know, I could protect myself, I could handle myself. You know, if it push came to shove, I, it didn't bother me. You know, I just put my head down, just swing away, you know. It, it's, you got to carry yourself, meaning... You can't be a scaredy cat, not in that kind of position, because, you know, going to residential school is, is a scary thing. At the time, you never really thought of it that way. But now, since I've been out of it so, for so long, and the stuff that I've seen and the stuff that had happened living there, I mean, you know, it was dorms. There was 35, 45 of us in one room with a bunch of bunk beds. I think is at night sometimes, you know, if there was a dispute, they'd, they'd come after you. And there's all kinds of weird ways that they came after you, mostly dragged you out of bed and beat the hell out of you. Or they put a bar of soap in a pillowcase and they'd swing it at you while you're sleeping. A lot of times you'd wake up with welts in your chest and your stomach or on your back and because someone didn't like you, you said something too rank or, or you looked at their girlfriend the wrong way. And, you know, that's another thing too, like... They always say, you know, were there any of that, that kind of stuff, boyfriend, girlfriend? Yeah, certain students did do the boyfriend, girlfriend thing. But a lot of us didn't do that because we considered ourselves to be family after a while. It's like, for instance, the ones who were uh, boyfriend, girlfriend at the time in the school are still married today. Oh. And there's several couples that I know of that were couples during school and are still couples today. And then there's, you know, what we call the lifers, you know, the ones that went to school their entire life. And today they don't have a home, like meaning they don't have a home life. They don't know how to be moms and dads. They're still lost. Oh. 
because that's another thing that the residential school was, was to break that family bond, to take that away from everybody. For instance, like my great-grandparents, Alec and Megan Uxers, the one I lived with, my mom's grandparents, they lost the ability of being a parent to their children because their children all went to residential school. After they came out of school, then the relationships started to go back, mom and dad, mom and kid, you know, that kind of... But when they first came back and while they were going to school and they'd come home during the summer, you know, my mushroom used to always say that it was a very difficult time for him because he wanted to speak to his kids in Cree and they didn't understand them. Or they were afraid to talk back to him in Cree. So my mushroom had to learn English. My cookum had to learn English to teach, you know, to, to, you know, communicate with their own children. I mean, that's that was the breakdown. And the thing is, you see that part. It's with their children. I'm going to use their, their children as an example. There are so many girls and so many boys. And out of those boys and girls, when they grew up, they got married. Some got married. Some didn't get married. And the thing is, the ones that didn't get married, my dad would then tell me, you know, you know they, were, they were abused at school. So there was two or three uncles that were, you know, sexually abused by priests and nuns. And that was one of the bad things that happened. And from there, that's for the interfamily, intergenerational abuses started there. Because when they start growing up, then they'd start doing that to their nieces and nephews and their children. If they had children, you know, that bad cycle started. That was generation one. And there's generation two is my mom. When my mom was about five years old, her too, the church came and said, by law, she's got to go to school. So they took her at the age of five and shipped her off to school. And then that's where that started. You know, and, and, you know, it's, when I went to school, it, it wasn't by law. It was by choice. I chose to go to school there. Well, ran out of schools because I was being a jackass, but, you know, you know, tough kid, talked back. I didn't back down. And the thing is, I was always that, that kid that just, if you push me the wrong way, good luck. Because I dropped the gloves. And we'd fight. You know, I, I wasn't scared of it. And the thing is, I was a kid with very long hair. I always had long hair. My braids were so long, I used to stuff them in my front pockets. And if someone got lippy over it and called me a girl or something like that, and I'd say, what'd you say? And then next thing you know, we're nose to nose. And I said, say it again, say it again, say it again. So they'd say it again, then bang, a big fight would happen. Yeah. And I didn't care if the guy was six feet tall or three feet tall. It didn't matter to me. Uh, you're in my face. That's the way I was. You know, but, you know, by going to school at Labrette School, residential school, you know, you learn to tame that beast because yeah. if you're always going to be fighting, then you're always going to be fighting. And the thing is, it's it's something like, how would I say, you get out of what you learn. Now, by going to school at Labrat School, I met a lot of people, lifetime friends and family members. Now, there's a lot of boys that I went to school with and girls that I went to school at the same time, same grade. And some of us are still friends. We're still talking. We still send messages to each other all the time. 
And some of us consider each other to be more siblings than our own siblings. I mean, that's the one thing that we got out of it. And the only reason why we consider ourselves brothers and sisters is because we went through the same thing together. We all fought that loneliness together. And when we didn't have family members to console each other, we consoled each other there. We became our own family. We looked after each other. You know, that's that's one of the good things that I can say out of Labrette School or going to the residential school is the kids that you went to school with, they became your your surrogate family. Oh. And some of us are still still family together because we still call each other brothers or sisters and brothers, you know, we're siblings. I mean, we're still lifelong friends and we probably will be for a long time, right till the end. So with that, that's, you know, my kind of story to how we survived residential school. So, you know, it wasn't all grim and ugliness all the way through. Like there was some good times and, you know, as well as some really rough times. So with that, that's, that's my take on how I survived residential school. Thank you. Thank you for listening for this episode of Hoax Shit Up. <laughs>